When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the New Books Network. I'm Jason Newton, a postdoctoral fellow in the history of capitalism at the University of North Carolina at Charlotte and a host at the network. Today, we'll be talking with Michael Hillard. Dr. Hillard is an economist at the University of Southern Maine and the director of the University of Southern Maine's Food Studies Program. He publishes widely in labor relations, labor history, and the political economy of labor. He's a co-author with Jonathan Goldstein of Heterodox Macroeconomics, Keynes, Marx, and Globalization, which was published with Rutledge in 2009. He's written award-winning articles for journals like Labor History and the Review of Radical Political Economics. And he's also written many uh, op-eds and essays for the popular presses, including the Boston Globe, the Portland Press, Herald, The Nation, and many others. But today we'll be talking about his new book, Shredding Paper, The Rise and Fall of Maine's Mighty Paper Industry, which was published with ILR Press, which is a division of Cornell University Press, and it was published in 2021. So, Michael, welcome to the show. Glad to be here. Um, so, I hope we could begin the interview uh, with you telling the audience a bit about yourself. Uh, so, even before we get into the book, uh, I'd like to hear about how you got interested in labor issues in the first place. Uh, well, that's an, a long story. It goes back to the 70s when I was an undergraduate and I was at a university, University of Massachusetts, that was very politically active. Um, and in particular, I had a great labor history mentor who's uh, still alive and kicking, Bruce Laurie, one of the most distinguished labor and working class historians of the 19th century in the U.S. Um, and uh, while I wound up going to graduate school in economics, um, labor was sort of always my kind of guiding star in terms of how I understand society and history. Um, and it was because there was such a great uh, uh, burst in the 60s and 70s of what's now called the new labor history uh, that uncovered the previously untold stories of workers um, at various points in U.S. history, how capitalism shaped their lives, often quite negatively, um, how social movements came together to transform society for the better at various points. Um, and, you know, some 40 plus years later, uh, while I've absorbed and <clears throat> been trained in uh, mainstream economics, political economy, uh, you know, very much an interdisciplinary scholar, but a ton of labor sociology over the years, um, you know, uh, it, it's just sort of like, uh, to me, uh, the core of capitalism for, for the majority of people who live in it, uh, you're talking about working class, people have to sell their uh, time and their um, abilities uh, to an employer. Um, and so I think the study of that over our history um, illuminates just really, um, you know, almost, a, you know, a scorecard of how does the economic system affect uh, most of the people who live in it. Um, when I teach my labor history and related courses, I often start off with this uh, chapter in a book by Le uh, Nelson Lichtenstein, uh, State of the Union, which is sort of a premier uh, historical survey of labor in the 20th century. And he starts off by talking about um, at the time of World War I, there was this sort of national discussion of the labor question because workers had been treated so badly at that point by capitalism that they were striking in great numbers uh, that kind of came to head during World War I. And so there was this sort of moment uh, where society was trying to talk about how 
um, workers um, who can't improve their lives individually because of structural issues uh, can come together and maybe persuade the rest of society, the state, uh, middle classes, if not the uh, you know capitalist elite, that we need to change policies, institutional structures to give workers um, you know a better life in the workplace and, and in the democracy. So that's always guided me, and I've taught labor history for a long time, and I decided. Uh, 20 years ago, uh, while I didn't get formal training in graduate school in uh, historical research, um, I felt like I was well read enough. Uh, and I kind of hit on the idea that, um, you know, a living history through oral history would be a great way. Um, you know, like I felt very, uh, very conversant on how political economy, class relations, things like that have changed, uh, uh, you know, since the time of the Great Depression and then the beginning of the New Deal up until now. Uh, and I was aware that there was a real story here in Maine with the paper industry because, uh, um, you know, when I first looked into it, there were almost no articles or books about the paper industry and even fewer about paper workers. Um, when I came to the state of Maine, I went to UMass Amherst for college and graduate school, but when I came to the state of Maine in uh, 1986, a short time after that, one of the most dramatic strikes uh, of really the last half century started up the road in Jay, Maine. Uh, so uh, International Paper, the biggest company in the country, was uh, basically trying to force their workers into striking um, through ridiculous demands on, uh, you know, givebacks and things like that, and then had an active plan to replace them with non-union workers. So, so there's this huge case of, for lack of a better way of describing it, a very intense class struggle just going up, on, up the road. Um, and I didn't know anything about the paper industry. And the thing about the paper industry is that, uh, you know, because of geographical reasons that we'll probably talk about shortly, um, you know, paper mills are located in rural areas away from cities, away from universities. Um, and so it's, you know, again, explains the kind of understudied nature of it. So I decided just to take out my shovel and start doing oral history interviews with workers um, who are literally down the street. There's a paper mill right outside of Portland, Maine uh, that I then discovered was like, it's probably to this day, the oldest still, uh, you know, <clears throat> functioning uh, paper mill in, uh, in the United States. Um, and uh, uh, lo and behold, based on reading, you know, things about oral history and community memory and just my own deep knowledge and interest of issues of the workplace, you know, what some uh, scholars call the labor process. Uh, immediately an incredibly rich uh, story started unfolding uh, in front of me. And, uh, you know, like the dog on the bone or the person grabbing the loose string and a ball of string and tugging, I just kind of kept tugging for 16 years. Um, you know, and along the way, I realized I started to publish some, some good articles. I did uh, a radio documentary, what we now call podcast back in 2003, um, using a lot of my oral history interviews. And uh, so it was just this rich project. And, um, you know, as somebody who wasn't trained uh, formally in history, um, you know, it was just sort of challenged to see if I could figure out how to, um, you know, do the research and write a book uh, that would tell a big story. And, uh, you know, that's that that got me up to about 2006, 17, when I finished the draft of it and the book came out last year. Great. Um, so you mentioned the, the oral histories, and, and that's a, a vital part of the book. That's, you know, a, a big chunk of your evidence base. So before we even get into the argument, uh, you know, I, I'd love to hear more about uh, what you think the benefits of, of that kind of source is, you know, versus, you know, going to archives or reading newspapers. Um, why, why is oral history so important for the story that you're telling? Well, first of all, um, you know, uh, going back to Clifford Garrett's a famous cultural anthropologist who uh, informed a lot of people who do social and labor history uh, 50 years ago. Um, the thing about oral sources is, you know, think about this from the point of view of the historian. Historians are forced in most circumstances to require an archives because the subjects they're writing about are dead and often dead for centuries. So there's no time capsule you can go back in and, hey, Tom Jefferson, explain your contradictory views about uh, race, uh, uh, sex, and the fact that you're married or that you're married, you're, you're making children with Sally Hemings. You can't go back and do that. So I thought it was a great opportunity to kind of capture um, a really thick description of something that um, 
you know, was uh, in a period of transition. You know, when I came here in the 80s, it was clear that the paper industry was under attack. Big layoffs were starting um, to, to go down. So, um, and then, you know, the industry is now a shell that shelf uh, 30 years later. So the idea that I could catch the sort of living heritage of how did work go in this industry and what do people remember about the history of how their companies, you know, were operated and how the workers themselves were treated. So, so I think it was the opportunity to get into that thick description. But I also had the good fortune, a colleague of mine said, you know, you must read this literature on community memory and, and labor history, uh, based on doing oral history methods. And uh, it was this book by um, uh, Alessandro Portelli called The Death of Luigi Trastulli and Other Stories, which is, I think, widely known by people who do oral history. Um, and that in particular, you know, once I, you know, I said like, okay, this guy shows these dramatic contradictions and how people remember things and what actually happened and mining all that. Um, and as soon as I got started, my first 10 interviews, I discovered this community memory story about people like before I could turn my, uh, my microphones on saying, hey, I got to tell you the story about how my grandfather's, you know, customer at the little store in the corner he ran was bailed out by the company and they took a dollar out of his paycheck. And I heard that like three times in 10 interviews. A uh, young man uh, who I quote in the book, um, Chris Murray is 31 years old, walks in with a five inch stack of uh, old historical documents, including a company history that I was not aware of before that because I'm just getting started. Um, you know, and it was all about how Samuel Dennis Warren, the founder, would be rolling in his grave if they knew what they were doing with the company now. Um, and, you know, you might like on the surface say, well, that's just the kind of rose colored glasses sort of thing. But I found like more systematic and complicated, um, you know, ideation. And what, what Portelli tells, uh, you know, the reader or the historian trying to follow him is that um, what oral sources give you that you can't get from other sources is meaning. So it's not a perfect replica of what happened on this date in 1967, um, you know, but rather it's how people feel and understand and even structure their understanding of what's happened to them, uh, past and present. Um, and so I found it a particularly kind of rich thing. And so like, again, I just sort of thought like, I'd done interviews in other contexts. I loved qualitative research. Um, I had this kind of guidepost. And so, um, you know, what I was able to uncover, and let me just say a little bit more about the methodology that will spill into the story, is that, you know, one of the signal events in this particular mill is that it won 113 years uh, not being unionized, um, some decades way past all the other paper mills in the state unionizing. Um, and I tried to make sense of why that happened, and that led me to this huge discovery about a paternalistic system that I think is one of my book's contributions um, uh, on a subject that has been periodically covered by historians, but, you know, there's always more to find out when you do the case studies. Um, so, uh, so, but, you know, there were all these contradictory understandings of why the mill unionized, and one simple explanation that most people had is that that's when the company was sold to Scott Paper, and people were afraid of an out-of-state company coming in. Um, at the same time, uh, you could look at um, things that they were telling me about the shop floor that made it clear that the paternalistic bargain had broken down, uh, that the mill managers that had been there in the 50s and 60s didn't have the touch that previous mill managers had. I mean, there's a guy uh, named John Hyde who was there from 31 to 49 as a mill manager who probably knew almost everybody in the mill by name. And that's at a point when they had 2000 employees. The later, later managers had lost the touch, but there was a lot of abuse on the shop floor, a lot of inequity, a lot of uh, uh, nepotism that led to you know, people getting access to high bonus jobs, you know, where you can make much more money than the person right next to you. Um, and so you know, what you're able to do, I think, in oral history is that you know, people often use the word ethnography for the you know, you become engrossed in a reality that dozens of people you've talked to have described in a particular mill. And, you know, you've read the uh, written record as well, because I went and read all the newspaper clippings I could get and, you know, other sources that I found. And, you know, you start to triangulate a lot of different things. And, and I think you're able, you know, I, I feel very confident that I was able to vet um, sort of competing stories about the past and you know which ones of them were sort of a reinforcement of the written record and which ones 
uh, or expression of community memory that intrinsically may not have exactly described why something happened. And how can you say like, why did a company unionize? It's overdetermined by a bunch of different factors, um, but that there's a community memory element and that obviously figures very, uh, very importantly in my book. Yeah, and I think what you call it is a, a folk political economy um so could you just I explain i mean i think you did a good job kind of explaining parts of that just mm -hmm. now but could you explain maybe what what you mean by that and how that idea kind of guides the rest of the book sure sure well so the first thing is that we haven't really talked about capitalism um and uh you know we live in an interesting moment at this point where uh millennials and gen z's um favor socialism over capitalism according to the most recent surveys um, and that's because we're having, for the first time in a long time, a conversation about the nature of capitalism. Last time we had that conversation was in the 1970s, when conservatives and reactionaries, um, well-funded by uh, top, you know, right-wing capitalists, um, were injecting a conservative discussion about capitalism led by Milton Friedman and people like him, uh, in opposition to the regulated capitalism that came out of the 1930s and the New Deal. Um, but, you know, generally Americans, uh, you know, think of capitalism like a, it's like a political system, like capitalism or like you get to choose what you want to buy and you get to vote for your representative. Um, and the world we live in now and in the past teaches us that capitalism and democracy is a vexed relationship and biggest capitalist country in the world is China, which has a politically communist government. Um, so all that said, I mean, you know, capitalism in my my scholarly uh, world, which overlaps several different fields, um, is a set of institutions, class, race, and gender relations, um, which is complex and evolves over time and differs across countries. So German capitalism, Japanese capitalism, uh, Chinese capitalism, and American capitalism right now are, are very different institutional structures, even though they all share markets, commodities, I mean, things that define capitalism and especially a predominance of wage labor as a form of employment. So if you put all that together, um, you know, what I understand, and I know you're familiar with, and maybe some of your listeners will, is that uh, business, economic, and political economy historians in the United States understand American capitalism is going probably through um, at least three major phases of which the middle part is the mass production revolution. Um, I really emphasize in my book, and I'll come back to your question in a second, but I really emphasize in my book um, understanding the way in which corporations are institutionally structured to be governed. It's called corporate governance if you're an insider. Um, and how the corporate governance of most of the 20th century is you have these big companies that mass produced uh, physical commodities, everything from paper to automobiles to electrical products, um, you know, you name it, um, things that you bought. So um, th uh, these, these were being produced by very large corporations that tend to be a few in an industry, so-called oligopoly. Um, and they were managed by powerful managers who didn't uh, have to respond to shareholders. Shareholders were dispersed and, and you know, sort of accepted dividends and weren't involved in the governance of the corporations. It's called managerialism, uh, most often in literature. And that was replaced by the financialized corporation in the late 20th century, uh, which was basically, you know, in shorthand, the Wall Street takeover of, uh, of uh, the large companies in the United States. And I can say more about that in a minute. Back to folk political economy. So um, in the last 15 years or so, historians that often have come out of the labor history field, um, interestingly enough, but people coming from other perspectives, have started to write what, what's explicitly called the history of capitalism, sort of acknowledging all the things I've been saying in the last few minutes. Um, and uh, that was a sort of a welcome development for me because with the particular training I got in labor history and radical political economy 40 years ago, I was trained in the history of capitalism and I've always thought about it that way. And now it's become a thing, which is great, great. I really appreciate it. Um, so what I discovered in the memory, community memory of these workers and the, the stories of the founders um, and they worship, I mean, that's the kind of thing I found in multiple mills and other writers have found, you know, in their ethnographies of other uh, paper mills in the state, um, that there's a kind of worship of founders, like it's often referred to as um, filiopietism, which is a 
New England Puritan practice of ancestor worship, but we know it in our own, uh, you know, U.S. culture where almost everybody recognizes that we honor and revere the founding fathers of our country. You know, Hamilton has gotten a big run thanks to Linwell, Miranda and others, you know, Washington, Jefferson, Madison, Adams, and so forth. Um, and so these workers in these communities who were appalled by the bleeding and attacks and desiccation of these great, um, uh, you know, uh, uh, manufacturing institutions, paper mills are really complex and amazing um, uh, entities, you know, but these workers were like periodizing the history that they lived through, through their own experience um, and the sort of lodestar or guiding star of their analysis was this reverence of the founders. Um, and when you dig into their narratives, and this gets into that point about meaning as opposed to, um, you know, facts, although I think the facts <laughs> were pretty well lined up in their understanding too, um, is to say that, you know, here was a capitalism before that in many ways works, that had some uh, some equity to it, had stability, security. I mean, people, you know, basically were cradle to grave. Uh, their kids and grandkids got jobs in these places. They paid 50 to 80% more than any other manufacturing or blue collar job in the state. Um, and there was a sense of belonging in institutions that were important to society because these workers could rattle off, you know, we made IBM cardstock, we made the uh, you know, the, the glossy paper that was used in corporate annual reports, basically the most expensive paper anybody could buy for publication. They could go through all this as SNH green stamps, SNH green stamps, uh, something that older boomers would know and the rest of you um, look up on Wikipedia. Uh, uh, Sears catalog paper, um, you know, paper for the New York Times, all of that. So, um, so it's this sort of like complex um, folk history and folk economics about why their industry declined. And uh, as an institutionally informed, uh, uh, you know, historian of, of, of capitalism and its many phases in the United States, um, it was an exceedingly rich and accurate portrayal. And I sort of end the book by saying, look, everybody should listen to their experience um, because what they're doing in their own words is indicting a form of capitalism that has made capitalism go backwards for the majority of working people. Uh, since 1980. And if we want, if we had two minutes at the end of the uh, podcast, I would say a little bit about what that means going forward. But, I, you know, I sort of say, you know, these folks had their own analysis of the history of economic uh, developments in their industry and by extension, U.S. society. Uh, and it's very insightful about what's wrong about the term since 1980. Great. Um, so you, you touched a little bit there, too, on paternalism. And my, my reading of the book was that you described three stages of capitalism and, and paternalism was the first one that you deal with at length. So maybe we can just go through each stage um, individually and describe how people experience that type of capitalism. Sure. That's a... Uh... That's a great question. Well, let me just start by emphasizing that this book is, uh, uh, you know, there are two types of books that often come together, um, but I think mine is distinct in how equal these stories are. So one narrative is, um, this is a social history really of working people in the paper industry. So it's a bottom up story of working people, whether in unions or not, as a labor historian, you're interested in working class experience. It doesn't depend on them being in unions or anything like that. Unions are important institutions, so you want to chronicle them because they emanate, um, for the most part, from the working class itself. Then there's a political economy story. Um, there's a labor historian, very well known in the field, uh, Leon Fink, uh, who's my favorite line ever by anybody. The sort of political economy uh, uh, is the forces acting upon workers. Um, so, uh, so just to go back then to, so I do both in the book and kind of equally. So in the era of paternalism that marked the entire industry, there was a problem that employers had in the paper industry, which I really delve into a lot. A couple of my readers have said like, wow, that's a really like long discussion of work, but I think it's valuable if that's what the book is going to be about, about workers. Let's, let's start with really understanding the work. And the, the, the work in the paper industry is really unlike most other mass production industries. If, um, uh, if an archetype of that era 
uh, um, uh, you know, from turn of the century to 1970 or 80 is uh, the auto industry. Um, in fact, many historians call that whole period Fordism after uh, Ford. Um, it's based on the idea of a routinized assembly line you know, you, 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 you lower labor costs and ramp up production to unbelievable scale. Um, you know, Ford Dearborn Works in, in the 1920s, making a thousand cars a day from scratch almost, um, you know, but it's based on the assembly line and, and historians often point to uh, uh, this uh, engineering movement led by Frederick Winslow Taylor called scientific management. So. Um, so that's the archetype of industry, and it's, it's, it's a story of de-skilling. That didn't happen in the paper industry and really couldn't. Um, there's been some changes since the 1980s because of uh, computer automated controls that have changed the labor process. But for more than a century, uh, the classic paper mill had the same set of, uh, you know, you have the pulp mill, you have a bunch of intermediate processes where pulp gets mixed. Uh, before the pulp mill, there's the woodlot because you make uh, uh, you make paper out of trees and the trees have to be brought in and ground up and then fed into the uh, pulp mill. So there's, you make pulp, which is a chemical suit of uh, uh, water chemicals and uh, wood fibers. Then you have the furnish that gets, uh, you get various um, typically non-organic um, uh, non chemicals, you know, things like clay and whatever it gets mixed into the paper to give it a certain set of qualities. Uh, this is still still a liquid sort of thing. Then it gets sprayed onto a paper machine uh, where it gets starts off as 98% water and at the other end it's you know 10% water and huge rolls of paper come off a 100 yard long machine and then it gets uh, uh, cut up and inspected and things like that packaged to be shipped. So there's all these different stages in it. And it turns out like, um, you know, I, I focus a lot on this SD Warren Mill in Westbrook, Maine which in the middle of the 20th century had 14 paper machines and would make as many as 25 to 30 products a week, all with their own very, with their own very specific characteristics. And so to get to the point here, um, it was the machine skills of workers who had worked on basically baking a touchy souffle every shift and it could change from shift to shift or within shift um, and, uh, you know, from a, a, a case study done by Harvard at the time, they, they quoted a worker saying, or a manager saying that, you know, the men used to say that it would take 287 factors to make a good run of paper. So the bottom line is that there's this very high degree of skill. And so, and that skill rests in the hands of workers and there was no wrestling the skill out of the workers' hands through some form of scientific management. So what did that mean? Well, it meant that the, the people who made the company money and who had control over whether or not the company made money were the most skilled hands on the various processes that I described. Um, and it would take them 20 years to really know how to, in a certain set of talents, really know how a machine uh, could produce this paper, that paper. And when the paper was breaking or was coming out with too many blemishes, you know, um, I, I have very detailed descriptions of how you know you could change the um, mix of the pulp, you could change the mix of the per the the um, uh, the furnish, you could change the speed on the paper machine, um, or you could like do something post because they would often take uh, paper and they would further uh, buff it and put a finish on it in a thing called, um, you know, a, <clears throat> I'm going to blank in the name of the machine, but um, uh, but any event, you know, uh, co co coding, coding machine. So, um, you know, with all these steps, the, 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 the fate of the profit made each day or losses each day fell in the hands of these workers. And so you had to have a kind of very cooperative relationship between a fairly lean management structure. We had a bunch of like specialists, um, you know, uh, many, you know, who also learned by the seat of their hands over decades, who collaborated also with the research and development lab and a lot of testing took place during every shift. Um, and so you could not grind down the workers the way most manufacturing companies were 100 years ago uh, and expect these workers to cooperate and so forth. So, so you know, um, and, and so the result of that was a culture where the employers had to be extremely generous um, in a meaningful way towards their employees in order to uh, be profitable. So in other words, the human element uh, to the workplace dictated that employers treat their employees relatively well. Now this is 
you know, in an era where there was no safety in health, it's a very, I mean, every paper mill is a, is a, is a toxic um, chemical uh, factory. Um, and so people got cancers and people got sick and people got chewed up and killed in machines. And uh, just in SD Warren, you know, over a couple of decades after 1950, I documented five different grisly deaths that took place in that mill. So, you know, those things would go on, but, you know, I think people sort of treat it as, well, we're sort of at war here and, you know, these are bad things happen and whatnot. Uh, but there was that sense of respect. And so um, in the story that I tell about SD Warren, that you could also tell about Oxford paper, that you could also tell about Millinocket, um, a little bit different story with uh, Fraser paper because there was a, a English French uh, ethnic divide, but in most of those mills, uh, you know, the employers recognized that they had to treat their workers better than anybody else, you know, in the state um, and earn their allegiance. And so, um, you know, you throw in a dose of uh, Puritan noblesse of liege, which was S.D. Warren's, uh, you know, the founder of that company in the mid 1800s um, background. And, and it sort of lent itself to this kind of uh, uh, non-forced generosity on the part of employers, um, you know, so it was a very good place to work with all kinds of caveats about it was a great place to work until you fell into bad chemicals and, you know, burned to death. Um, but, you know, if you didn't have that happen to you, you could live a, a life um, where, where I think the most important thing is that, you know, that sense of respect and craftsmanship, which is unusual for mass production industry, um, gave the workers an identity. Um, and I think some of the story that I can't document because it's too far in the past, but I think some of the workers, I think the workers kind of insisted on, on being treated that way. And I think the employers got it um, and figured out how to go along with that. So that was part one. Part two is that um, uh, after an early burst of unionization that was crushed in the 19 teens and 20s, there is a revival of unionism during the New Deal era when the labor movement you know, really expanded dramatically in the 30s, 40s, and 50s. Um, the story in the paper industry is very specific because um, you know, if anybody knows this, the, the history of the 30s and 40s, there was this upstart industrial union movement under the CIO, Congress of Industrial Organizations, uh, auto workers, steel workers, textile workers, you name it, uh, uh, that was overall pretty radical. There's a lot of communists and socialists who were organizers. They were about a kind of workplace democracy that encompassed every worker high and low within a workplace. The previous unions had been craft unions, conservative, uh, fairly uh, misogynist and racist. <laughs> hey, we're, we're, we believe in white skilled workers being in these unions. We don't trust anybody else to be in a union, certainly not black people, certainly not immigrants from Southern Eastern Europe. And to make a long story short, the paper industry essentially invited in or acquiesced to these old craft unions, um, craft style unions, they were you know, of that um, ilk. Um, uh, and sort of like, so the workers themselves didn't do much to unionize. The companies invited these conservative unions in. Why did that happen? Well, it happened quite a bit in the 30s and 40s because employers were like, I want to keep the CIO out. So I'll welcome these um, American Federation of Labor unions in. And so, and those unions were very top down and the, the, the leaders of it were more about um, cozy relationships with um, executives than democracy on the shop floor. But then what I talk about is after 1960, because of cultural changes in who workers are and the increasing tensions given the uh, move towards financialization, you know, again, you know, companies buying up local companies, national companies buying up local companies, um, replacing long-term inside mill managers with people on the outside who didn't understand the customs or even the product lines. Um, so all that stuff starts happening in the 60s. And so the workers themselves start to build a local uh, kind of strong shop floor democracy through their unions. Um, one of the things to know about a paper mill is for historical reasons, it'd be quite typical for there to be anywhere from three to as many as eight union locals because they have a lot of skilled maintenance workers that would have, you know, I'm in the machinists, I'm in the electricians, I'm in the carpenters and joiners, um, along with the paper workers union. Um, and so, you know, one of the things I discovered is it was quite common for dozens and dozens of people to have held some position in the unions that they were part of. And they were fighting at that point to sort of insist on that autonomy that they more or less had had all along, uh, but autonomy with an extra edge of fairness. Um, and that was what was going on in the 60s and 70s. So every mill in the state in the period between 64 and 1980 uh, had a meaningful strike, most of which were won by workers um, at that point. 
Um, so that militant consciousness that transformed what were otherwise top-down conservative unions into something else ran into the buzzsaw of financialization in the 80s. And I tell a fairly dramatic story about strikes, about attempts by some companies to go a different way, which is called the high road or high performance work systems. Uh, but basically a, a labor relations train wreck that took place in the 80s and 90s um, that workers lived through. And I interviewed them all right after that. And so I got like a very, very um, uh, strong and specific story about something was happening in all of American capitalism at this point. And I think what my book does at the end is it's an object lesson in how workers facing um, not just globalization, because people often sort of attribute uh, the decline of American manufacturing since 1970 to jobs going to China. Well, that was true after 2000, but most of the decline that I described took place in the 70s, 80s, 90s. And that was uh, really from the bleeding and the uh, mismanagement and the capital starving that um, Wall Street investors started to impose on paper companies. And workers reacted to it uh, quite militantly. Good. So, so that was a good overview, I think, of paternalism and that period of antagonistic unionism. And then finally, um, that period that some might call neoliberalism. W would you agree with that kind of characterization of that final stage? And, and what, is, what does neoliberalism mean then for, for the main paper industry? Yeah, so um, uh, one of my historian friends uh, once paid me a great intellectual comment, uh, uh, compliment, which is to say I was a really good periodizer. Um, and I think a, a political economist coming into history is more uh, inclined to periodize. Um, and I've written uh, essays and uh, sort of embedded my book about how it's great to periodize because it creates a, a conceptual structure to think about history. And then as soon as you periodize the history, you have to critique your periodization because periods are not static. And, you know, um, sort of there's always a dialectic roiling underneath the institutional, you know, stability of a, a particular period. Um, so neoliberalism, I think, is a powerful catch-all term, the way Fordism, I think, is for the previous era. So neoliberalism, um, interestingly enough, is, is about the politics of economic policy since the 1970s. Um, so big capital in the United States truly rejected at a deep visceral level all of the progressive developments of the 30s, 40s, and 50s, um, which were um, you know, national labor standards, Fair Labor Standards Act, minimum wage, time and a half over 40, um, you know, right to unionize in the Wagner Act or National Labor Relations Act, Social Security, uh, unemployment insurance, all those things that we associate with a kind of regulated capitalism that made things, frankly, much better for workers. You know, one of the uh, my favorite facts of the 1940s is that life expectancy increased three years for the average worker and five years for the average black worker, right? So, you know, it's a material improvement in society because of regulated capitalism. But American capitalists are very social Darwinian going back to the 19th century. Um, they never accepted the New Deal and they, they um, laid the groundwork to try and repeal it by, um, you know, funding right-wing uh, uh, foundations and think tanks, uh, supporting right-wing graduate students and, and professors, um, building up a, a cultural infrastructure, um, political cultural infrastructure to tear down uh, the liberalism that had emerged in the 30s and 40s. So you get to the end of the 1970s, rather, and you get this phenomenon of Thatcher and Reagan, and they come into office and they initiate a couple decades of deregulation. In other words, undoing what happened in the 30s and 40s across a whole bunch of things, like communications were deregulated. That gave us Fox News and the shenanigans that go on, you know, with uh, Laura Ingraham and uh, Tucker Carlson. Um, it gave us the finance deregulation of the financial industry, mostly under Democrats during the Clinton years, which led to the financial crisis of 2008. Deregulation of trade, which accelerated globalization and hurt blue-collar unionized workers in the United States. Um, and, you know, so it's kind of across the board. So it's the sort of um, freeing up capital to do whatever it wants. Um, and what it does is that it dismantles well-paid work in the United States over the last 40 years. Um, so what I try and highlight is that while neoliberalism is a broad catch-all, and one of the things I argue at the end of the book is that, and I think it's really clear now, but it wasn't even that clear three or four years ago, um, but the American working class, both conservative and progressive, white 
black or BIPOC um, has rejected neoliberalism, right? Neoliberalism doesn't have a big constituency in Washington at this point, after 40 years of ruling policy from both, both parties. Um, but, you know, in addition to globalization, I, I think the least understood piece of, of, of neoliberalism is financialization. And that's why my book, I think, is a really valuable case study for any reader who wants to understand why capitalism is a problem that we're talking about either reforming it or, or some young people uh, replacing it. Um, probably not very likely we're going to replace it, but I think we're having a very live discussion about reforming it for all the reasons that the last 40 years have taught us. Yeah, perfect. So, so that idea of reform or replacing actually leads right into my next question. Towards the end of the book, you use some terms that really helped me understand the book uh, a lot better, and that was this idea of good and bad capitalism. So again, if we think of capitalism as something that changes, you know, maybe we can make a value judgment about what times and places capitalism is good and what times and places it's, it's bad. So, you know, how do you employ that? Like which, which of these periods fall into which categories? Well, let me, let me just sort of model uh, or depict what I think would be a good capitalism. Uh, and a good capitalism is one in which the horrible negative externalities of worker exploitation, economic insecurity, where uh, environmental destruction, uh, you know, are, are, are kind of regulated as much out of existence as possible. Um, and one could argue that a number of the Northern European social democratic regimes that merged after World War II have accomplished most, if not all of that, a, a Germany, a Denmark, or a Sweden, um, have virtually no childhood poverty, um, are at the forefront of, you know, transition to net zero carbon emissions, you know, um, economies. Um, and, you know, they have a very strong social wage or social safety net so that people work hard in those countries, but they're economically secure, they don't fall into poverty. Um, and most importantly, and I think it's the thing that, that, you know, a lot of economists don't really grasp is that they have real voice in their workplaces through works councils and through laws that require workers sit on boards of directors. Um, and so, you know, if you look at the United States history and you go through that periodization, for a particular group of workers um, that represented much of the working class, but not all of it, um, the, you can argue that somewhere in the late 30s up through the, um, you know, early 1980s, um, there was a better form of capitalism. That's what these workers remember. Um, so they're basically white workers. So they were unionized. So they were in that privileged group. Um, you know, historians and other experts are very quick to point out that basically people of color were, for the most part, left out of those improvements in that period very directly through legislation. I mean, Southern white supremacist Democrats said, you can have your New Deal uh, FDR as long as it applies to your workers and not ours. And our workers are workers of color, primarily black. Um, so so African-American workers were left out of that. Women, you know, is still a patriarchal era. So women, uh, you know, women were dismissed from good jobs and factories in 1945 and sent home to create, you know, quote unquote, create jobs for the men coming home. Um, so, you know, with all those qualifications and caveats, um, you know, uh, one of my favorite uh, institutional labor economists, Paul Osterman, um, has this uh, schema that says that what we want in, in our labor market is uh, for workers, as well as employers, is efficiency, that we have to match the right workers to the right jobs, The workers have voice in the workplace, meaningful voice over the conditions of their work. Um, that they have equity in how they're paid, both within the firm and, you know, at a societal level, that they have economic security, so they're not likely, you know, to get injured and then, you know, fall into poverty for the rest of their life because there's no safety net there, um, or retirement income, or health insurance, or what have you, um, and mobility, you have a chance to move forward. I mean, something that goes on in Amazon right now is Amazon has set up a structure of employment where they celebrate their $15 an hour minimum wage but for the most part, that's a maximum wage too. Um, you know, the business model is not that you're gonna stay here for 40 years and move up and, you know, have a good income. So during that period, I think uh, in parts of the economy that may have affected up to 50% of the workforce, maybe a little bit more, you had most of those elements that Osterman uh, talked about and that's what neoliberal capitalists um, dismantled after 1980. 
Okay, so there's also this um, kind of parallel story that's told alongside of what's happening in the mills, and, and that's the story of procurement or the logging and the, the transportation of, of the logs. And you know, obviously, this is something I'm very interested in. Um, do you think that the story of procurement um, is the same story as what's happening in the mills, or, or do they diverge, or... What's your opinion on that? Yeah, um, I know I can count on you to ask this very important question. So a significant part of the, the workforce that I haven't talked about at all yet in this interview um, is uh, uh, procurement, meaning buying millions and millions of cords of wood. So Maine is the most forested state in the country. It's 18 out of 20 million acres forested. Um, at its peak, about 10 million of that um, was considered um, industrial forest, um, owned primarily by the paper companies. And as your forthcoming book will tell the, the origins of, and my book picks up the story around 1940, uh, there's a completely separate workforce that cuts the wood for mills and a completely different uh, employment and labor relations systems. Uh, uh, the version that emerged after 1940 is uh, uh, to have workers basically be like modern gig workers. Like, you know, you don't actually work for your employer the employer gets out of paying unemployment insurance or workers comp or whatever, and you're quote unquote your own small businessman, even though you're a working class person who doesn't really get rich. Um, and so there's a long and complicated story that I know you know well, uh, Jason. Um, I'll just sort of characterize it this way, which is that um, you know there was a period in the 50s where because of new technology, basically chainsaws and big tractor-like devices called skidders for uh, uh, dragging, um, you, have to, you have to yard the tree to the place that it's gonna, you know, you gotta take it out of the woods and bring it to where it's gonna be transported in the mill. Um, that um, there was a burst of pretty good pay <laughs> for about 15 years in the 50s and 60s that drew some new people into the industry and, you know, but mainly drew off that farmer stock. But there was also this kind of congenital conflict built in the industry that um, I argue, and I think you argue as well, you know, was sort of created by the paper companies. They uh, steadfastly denied they did anything to this, but they, they, they long relied on uh, a French Canadian workforce from over the border in New Brunswick and Quebec. Uh, people were equally or even more skilled at Woods work um, and uh, were brought in in that era under conditions of very little flexibility. They were basically tied to a particular employer um, and employers could work them harder, um, even though they're technically contractors in most cases. Um, and so it all kind of came to a head in the 70s when, uh, again, the squeezing that was going on in the paper mills was also going on in the woods. Uh, it impressed upon uh, the American uh, citizen workers that, uh, hey, this is not a good deal anymore. I'm basically going broke and, you know, driving myself, you know, to ruin physically to keep up with what I need to do to be able to, you know, make a basic living. And so there was a big strike in the mid-1970s. Um, it failed. Uh, it had flaws in it because the workers were targeting Canadian guest workers is the problem as opposed to the company's practices. So whether or not the companies on purpose split the workers against each other, um, uh, that's very much what happened and I think was a weakness in that. But they basically lacked the legal uh, foundation for collectively bargaining because the companies could use um, another thing they built into the structure, which is that you're business people, you're not whatever. So what you're doing is violating the Sherman Antitrust Act and the courts went along with that and uh, passed down major injunctions that, that basically killed the strike. Um, and what came out of that was an acceleration on the part of those industries uh, on the paper industry to uh, push forward a new round of mechanization uh, based on much more advanced machines that really mow down the forest. Um, these things called feller bunchers that look like huge construction machines that just literally, you know, cut down, you cut down acres and acres of, of trees in a day instead of, you know, quarter of an acre or something like that. Um, and so they replaced the workforce largely with a different group of rural uh, white workers uh, in Maine. Um, most, most of the jobs went away, like 70% of the jobs disappeared because of automation. Uh, and as you know, um, uh, those remaining mechanical contractors are facing all the same issues under somewhat different circumstances in 2021. The Senate president of uh, the Maine legislature, uh, Troy Jackson, is one of those 
sixth generation loggers who's still complaining about the same things that uh, loggers were complaining about 50 or 100 years ago, uh, even though the technology has changed. So there's that whole thing, and that you know, but it's 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 wound up being a small group of workers at this point. It used to be 10 to 15,000 people cutting wood, and now it's like you know, if it's 3,000, that's a lot. I think it's probably less than that. So you know, the, I think the book, your book, tells a story that's representative of of national trends. So a lot of what you're describing is happening elsewhere. And of course, the Rust Belt comes to mind. Um, but is there anything that makes the story of the paper industry in Maine unique and kind of different from other industrial histories in, in America? I think I would stress that while the particulars were different, um, and you heard me say a lot about the technology and labor process, the implications that had for labor relations, um, I think it's more, more typical um, and maybe in some ways highly instructive of what's been happening for 40 years. Um, you know, the, the corporate model that came in in the 80s when Wall Street investors became much more powerful and they said no more of this managers being in charge, you know, the people who control the, uh, uh, the shares of the company, uh, which are now these institutional investors that are basically managing huge pension funds. Um, and so it creates this kind of distinct situation where there's like a couple of dozen uh, people on Wall Street who, you know, lord over companies and tell them exactly what they expect from them. Uh, BlackRock and companies like that, um, Apollo Funds, um, Merrill Lynch, whatever. Um, and so, you know, what you get there is, uh, uh, you know, corporate America in the form of these institutional investors on Wall Street um, say, say, look, uh, you know, General Electric or whoever you are, um, if you have unionized, well-paid workers in their 50s and 60s and a lot of middle managers in, uh, who are not unionized, obviously, um, who get paid well in their 50s and 60s, um, you're stealing money from the shareholders. So you need to um, decouple your core practices of marketing, research, development, whatever, from production and other sort of things that require labor and push that labor outside the firm to subcontractors. And that can be in the United States or it could be offshore, or it could be in the form of gig work or whatever, but basically don't employ the people who make the products, goods and services that you make um, and push them into low wage labor markets. Um, so, you know, there are a lot of moving parts to that. I could recommend this great book by David Weil called The Fisher Workplace that I would recommend everybody to read. Um, but, you know, I, I think it's, I, I would say that this is a good insight into something that sort of metastasized and affected most of the American economy in distinct ways since the 1980s. So this particular to the story. Um, and one of the things I argue at the end of it is that, you know, um, uh, Joseph Schumpeter, this famous uh, term creative destruction, which says that industries at some point, or at least product lines will uh, sort of get uh, stagnant and mature and then be subject to competition from other sources of new products or new ways of making products or sending in someplace where the labor is really low. Um, so creative, so the destructive part of creative destruction is probably inevitable for most industries. Um, and so I would say that, um, you know, decline was coming in terms of employment in Maine to the paper industry, but can that decline be managed humanely uh, in the way it does say in Europe with what's called active labor market policy. So you have an industrial policy that uh, supports the production of a particular kind of product in, in this country and Hey, China spent $20 billion on uh, paper making technology between 2000 and 2010. We weren't doing anything like that. Um, they had trade policies that protected their companies. We weren't doing anything like that. So you could manage the decline so that the decline is based on attrition and not layoffs, which subject people to really uh, extreme downward mobility in their 40s, 50s, and 60s, um, and to have an active labor market policy where, you know, I mean, like, you know, if you're Joe Biden, uh, if, if we're going to take measures that are going to get rid of the last 30 or 40,000 coal jobs in, uh, uh, in West Virginia, can we guarantee that those same workers are going to be making $60,000 a year with benefits in some new industry, making solar panels or whatever? So those are things that I kind of introduce into the book. Um, and, you know, but at the same time, I, I think it's sort of like the unbridled political economy of the last 40 years 
uh, is a problem that almost everybody recognizes um, in some form. And I think it really does tee up a question of like, what version of regulated capitalism in the 20th century that puts worker voice uh, power and, and fate at the center, can we start to talk about? And I think we're having a conversation post the 2020 election about that. Uh, and I think my book would be a good guidepost to like what went right and what went wrong in history that we can draw on to inform this discussion. Great. Um, I, I want to push you a little bit to talk about um, what I don't think is a criticism of your book, but but it's a criticism of the new field of the history of capitalism. But, you know, using your book as an example, we have paternalism, unionism, neoliberalism, all forms of capitalism. And then we could even put those in like good or bad capitalism. And so then, you know, the term capitalism seems to become so stretchy and all-encompassing that everything falls in it and if it describes everything it describes nothing right so you know were all of these periods that you're describing capitalists were some more or less capitalist and, and what what would be not capitalist and, and maybe you can even use that as um a way to talk about you know you mentioned the future you want to talk a little bit more about sure. the future of labor relations so any any part of that question you can pick up on sure well you know i haven't been trained as a political economist so it's just like i start almost all my classes on <laughs> what do we count as capitalism and i treat capitalism as commodity production uh where the commodities are produced by wage laborers who work uh, for their employers uh, uh for the sole purpose of expanding the profit and growing the the, the scale of the firm right so that's um, and so the question is not so much, you know, whether or not, um, and, and that core character of uh, commodity production based on wage labor exists in many different institutional contexts. So I would just go back and say that, um, that saying something is capitalist is incomplete because you need the adjectives that put you in a particular historical point with a particular institutional makeup that can affect everything from how workers are employed and treated to how the financial system is treated to how corporate governance is structured to whether or not you're regulating the externalities of companies uh, you know, of, of, of commodity producing companies and things like the environment. So I'll just go back to this is that, you know, I think the idea of like there's a hard thing of capitalism, there's a hard thing of socialism. That's an argument that um, is inadequate and incomplete and characteristic of, of the right. I mean, if you know the sort of Friedrich Hayek, Milton Friedman story, they say there's pure free markets where good things happen, free choice and things like that, optimal production. And then there's central planning, you know, like North Korea or Soviet Union back in the day. And that's an argument that people who are critical of free market capitalism are always gonna lose because the alternative is such a horrible straw man. Um, the fact of the matter is that capitalism has always been embedded in a very specific institutional context that evolves over time and in different places. And so what I would say is that, um, you know, there, you know, you can expand, uh, you can tax the uh, wealth of GDP and, and shift it to the public sector to expand what some social scientists call the social wage. So you raise uh, health insurance, uh, ample retirement, strong safety net if you get injured, things like that. So a strong social wage and uh, strong labor standards from either government regulation or unions that um, raises wages, gives workers voice, some of the things I talked about before. Um, and then obviously we have an existential threat with, uh, with climate change at this point. Um, and we have the need to try and you know, see if we can finally make uh, a new round of really major progress on, on white supremacy and, 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 uh, and racism in this country. So those are all things that, um, you know, to the extent that you interfere with a pure free capitalism, um, you know, well, that's always been the case. So let's pick the kind of interference that keeps the golden goose going. And you can always talk about how these countries that a lot of people want to call socialist have some of the most competitive capitalist firms in the world. You know, everybody knows about BMW and Mercedes or whatever, um, you know, Volvo on the one hand. So leave that in place, but then regulate and create an institutional set of uh, structures that, you know, eliminate exploitation, give workers voice, um, 
uh, produce equity, deal with problems like climate change uh, and address you know, structural racism. Those are all things you can do and still produce commodities with wage labor. Uh, but I wouldn't fetishize like that there's some absolute you know, archetypes. I think there's, a, there, there's basically a continuum um, and you can go pretty far because there are existing examples in the world towards a kind of social demand, democratic environmental green capitalism. Um, and it's something that, you know, we're kind of talking about right now, Biden administrations, people on Wall Street are saying every corporation has got to get their act together and do something to, uh, you know, trans transform to a net zero carbon um, uh, future. But, um, you know, the problem in the United States is labor is always sort of the orphan of social progress. And so, um, you know, we need major changes in the institutional and regulatory structure of the country um, to ensure workers those things that they truly deserve because, you know, one of the most basic things that I say in even my intro classes when I teach macroeconomics is our GDP cap per capita is the highest in the world. It's doubled in the last, uh, you know, 40 years or so. And we have more poor people now than we did then <laughs> in almost any other country. It's like we have the resources to not have poverty um, in this country. We have the resources for people to have good lives. And, um, you know, instead of more of that in the last generation as we more productive, we've gotten less of that. And so, you know, the time has come to kind of turn it around. Um, but I wouldn't call it a revolution. I would call it making progress on those, you know, higher social wage, better labor standards, transforming work to have more voice uh, and equity and things like that. Um, and I think it's what, you know, I mean, certainly millennials are talking about this, you know, um, you know, just to pick one sort of basic thing, it's like, why do people go to college to do something that's good for them and society and wind up in horrible debt um, and, and still are subject to predatory lenders that put them in that case. I mean, these are kind of things like it's that's bad capitalism when stuff like that goes on, you know, um, and we could have a better capitalism, but it's not so much like a better capitalism. It's it's taking the things that that uh, that that surround capitalism in a sense. Uh, you know, the, the degree of the social wage, the amount of regulation of labor markets, the amount of power that workers uh, get within enterprises and things like that, and make improvements on all those very specific policy areas so that um, people don't have to needlessly suffer and we don't destroy the, 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 the climate. It's not really a hard, hard thing to get your mind around, uh, but it takes you past the current ideological discussion between conservatives and liberals. And, um, you know, I think we have a society ready to have that conversation. Well, Michael, we've taken up a lot of your time already. Um, so maybe if you want to very briefly tell us about anything new that you're working on now before we wrap things up. Yeah, sure. Um, well, uh, you know, if you look at uh, uh, an important journal in the labor relations field, the ILR Review, um, I put together a symposium on a book uh, called No Longer Newsworthy about the decline of labor journalism. So, so, so I put together a really good group of people and put, to, put together some pretty pithy essays on the topic of what is the working class right now and how do we understand it, uh, especially on racial terms. Um, uh, and uh, I have, I'm, I'm looking at a couple different things. Um, you and I might collaborate on uh, bringing up to date the story about loggers in Maine and how that fits into a broader story about the white working class. Uh, I have a paper that I'm going to build uh, a lot more writing on uh, about what's going on with capital right now. So what's happening on with financialization? And just to give you a headline topic. So along the lines of what is bad capitalism, the Fortune 500 uh, or S&P 500 from 2010 to 2019 spent basically 100% of its profits on enriching shareholders, like very directly, sort of a looting of the corporation through stock buybacks, which enrich a small number of insiders at the very top of the income distribution, billions and billions of dollars, and dividend disbursements. So American corporations are not working on their future which means they're not working on our future either. So they're not investing in research and development technology and stuff like that. And it's driving an extreme of inequality that people just don't even realize. But when you spend $9 trillion out of $10 trillion of profit over 10 years on enriching a few thousand you know, investors in this country, that's money could be spent on higher wages. It could be spent on research and development, on technologies that are green, all those things. Capital is really abusing the rest of us and actually a very specific insider coalition of extremely rich uh, financial capitalists and their associates. Um, 
And that's a problem. Um, and again, you know, it's sort of like what version of capitalism we want, a version of capitalism where the companies, the enterprises themselves are innovating for the future. That's what every conservative pro-free market person celebrates. And our corporations are not doing that at all right now. Um, and it's something that most people don't understand. So I just go back to this thing that, you know, my book is a labor history book and I hope people see it that way. It's an economic history of capitalism book. And we've talked a lot about that here. Um, but it really speaks to the thing of like, you know, people don't see these abstract institutional forces on Wall Street, but they certainly affect your lives. And there's really a scandal out in open, you know, open air right now that most people don't recognize or understand. Uh, and so I feel like it's incumbent upon me and other people who care about labor um, to critique the version of capitalism. There are excellent proposals to end stock buybacks and give workers a third to a half of seats on boards of directors from senators like Tammy Baldwin, especially who has the best uh, thing, um, Elizabeth Warren, who's best known for it, Bernie Sanders. Um, so I think in the next decade, we need to talk a lot more about reforming capitalism at the top because it's, it's sickening. That's all you can say. It's sickening. And it's not, it's not what people celebrate capitalism for. Yeah, well, you know, this book and, and your work more generally is doing a great job um, exposing more people to these issues. All those projects sound great, and I certainly look forward to collaborating with you more. I want to thank you for being on the show today. I really enjoyed it, and take care. You too. Good to be with you.